I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Times Business Podcast. I'm Callum Jones. This week, we're talking Brexit, so I'm joined by Bruno Waterfield in Brussels, Catherine Griffiths, our banking editor, and Marcus LaRue, our trade correspondent. Before we start, let's go back just 17 months. During, during this campaign, my case has been based on three things. First, the need for strong, proven leadership to uh, steer us through what will be difficult and uncertain economic and political times. The need, of course, to negotiate the best deal for Britain in leaving the EU and to forge a new role for ourselves in the world. Brexit means Brexit, and we are going to make a success of it. Bruno, uh, a year and a half later, is the government going to make a success of it? Well, we don't know what the government wants yet. So the criteria <laughs> of uh, success is, is, is still, and, and deliberately so, I mean, the, 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 the issue of what they call the end state uh, of Brexit has been you know, very, very much and very deliberately fudged, particularly after the pretty catastrophic election results um, for Theresa May. We're now hearing that the cabinet will discuss it or come to a view on it um, in January next year. The interesting bit about the whole breakdown over the Northern Ireland question is that the ambiguity or the fudging fell away and the real hard decisions because of the question of a hard border came to the fore a bit and has just shown us the government just isn't there yet. Now, this is something that really concerns the European side. I mean, I was talking to someone today who said it's actually pretty irresponsible at this stage in the negotiations with timing getting very, very tight and the economies of quite a few countries on the line, not just Britain's, the government hasn't yet decided what the end state will be. What does it want? What kind of future trading relationship does it want with the European Union? That decision hasn't been taken. Marcus, how difficult is this Irish conundrum? Well, I mean, before we even even get on to that, the government has been saying all along that the border question can't be solved until you have an idea of the end state. Uh, and the irony there is, as Bruno says, lo and behold, uh, the cabinet haven't even discussed what they want from trade talks. And this is something that's a huge concern to, to businesses and, and the big business groups. So there's one... Uh, one aerospace figure I was talking about relayed a meeting with the Brussels Article 50 Task Force where they were talking about membership of the European Aerospace Safety Agency um, and whether Britain could retain a seat at the table, which which people like, you know, the Rolls-Royces and the BAEs are, are, are desperate to. 
Um, and the rejoinder from across the table from the European side was, well, well, yes, but we haven't heard a thing from your government about regulatory realignment that would make this possible. The question then for the for the border question is, is there a form of words to everybody's satisfaction that is fudgeable, that is malleable enough to bear different interpretations to get us into into phase two. My my hunch is that um, that yes, there is uh, the DUP are nothing in if not pragmatic uh, when it comes to matters of of a financial nature. So the minute you know, and and Fianna Gael are doing very well in the polls at the moment. The the ruling party, Leo Varadkar's party. Um, uh, partly because they've taken this, you know, they've they've taken a much more forthright tone with dealing with the British government, um, and made it clear they won't be they won't be pushed around, and they won't won't bend over backwards to um, to find a solution to the border that lets the British government off the hook, and in fact the Irish government even under Andy Kenny had sort of stopped all of the technical work that would have you know, potentially help take the sting out of a hard border. So what we have at the moment is the DUP and, and, and the Irish government both making a bit of a racket for the benefit of their respective domestic audiences. I, I think, you know, Northern Irish business will make its view known to the DUP, some DUP supporters among them, that Northern Ireland has to be a special case. Is this anything more than political posturing then? Yes, it, it it is for that for that earlier reason that the regulatory alignment with the Republic of Ireland means one thing if the United Kingdom is regulator regulatorily aligned with the European Union, and another thing if it's if it's not, and if it is the latter situation where Northern Ireland is in a very different situation, then you need to look very carefully at what regulatory alignment might mean under different circumstances and what the consequent implications are for GB, Northern Irish trade, Great Britain, Northern Irish trade, which dwarfs cross-border trade, which isn't to downplay the significance of the cross-border element because that is embedded in a lot of those value chains, a lot of those supply chains. Agri-food's a classic example that goes across the Irish Sea into, in this instance, British supermarket shelves. Um, you know, So there's a lot to be argued over and a lot to be discussed. But I think enough people are keen to um, to to find a form of words that that delays that reckoning, and it probably has been complicated by the fact that that the British government, that London, still hasn't made clear and hasn't even decided itself at cabinet uh, where they're aiming. That we still don't really have much more flesh in the bones from the Florence speech in, and I think it was September. Mm. It's just a very important to make another note on this term regulatory alignment, which is mm. becoming hugely burdened. Um, not least uh, apparently in, in discussions in cabinet. The words regulatory alignment are essentially meaningless. They're not a conceptual uh, tool at all. They were chosen only to create, for semantic reasons, to create a bit of political space and a fudge that would move the border question into uh, phase two. Regulatory alignment is not a thing. Um, it's not a thing in sort of trade terms. It's not really going to be a thing in terms of Brexit either. It was literally a mechanism to create a bit of political space because the previous language ensuring no divergence really was a thing that has real legal uh, meaning. So it was a fudge. It was a fudge. It was It's fudge wording, essentially uh, meaningless. And the fact that it's blown up and now become a big deal for David Davis in the House of Commons and all the rest shows what a real mess the British government is in. Look, when that phone call came through to Theresa May on Monday, they'd closed the box on Ireland. All they'd been waiting for on Monday morning was Barrett Carr, Dublin to call and say that um, they agreed to the wording. Britain had already agreed to the wording uh, on Sunday afternoon 
um, into the evening. Um, and the, that, that, that section of the, the, the text was closed. And then Arlene Foster phoned Theresa May and it all blew up. So, yes, I mean, they, they're more than worried, uh, more than worried about the British government. They are facing a very real prospect that they can't negotiate with the British government. Look at what happened uh, this week. Phase two, all this trade stuff, when they get the transitional arrangement out of the way, which is relatively street, straightforward, very technically complex, uh, going to make a lot of lawyers very, very rich. But they are really worried about the future trade talks because that's really difficult. If you think the withdrawal stuff is difficult, take it up to a factor of 10 for trade talks because it's going to be fractious. The EU will be divided, which means it's going to be a proper fight. It's going to be real fisticuffs. And the British government is very, very weak. And what they really worried about in the EU is if Theresa May goes, who's next? Will it be Corbyn? Downing Street said this week, or certainly briefed this week, that Ireland was not the only outstanding problem during during the talks. Do we have any idea what what else was causing the issues, Bruno? Um, well, any briefing that comes out of uh, Downing Street is 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 uh, probably disingenuous uh, to say the least when it's not duplicitous. But Ireland wasn't an issue on Monday morning, as I've just um, explained. Most of the discussion was about the continuing role of the European Court of Justice as it applies to the residency rights of uh, EU nationals in Britain after Brexit and their children. Now, that debate was, was complex. They were fighting over whether the court would have full direct effect for five years, 15 years. They were moving towards um, 10 years. And that was what most of the debate on Monday was about. But they were very close to an agreement. And then Ireland flared up. So if you talk to people who have been in the room and people who are close to the negotiations, the ECJ issue is more or less there. And in fact, if, if Ireland hadn't flared up, um, there would have been agreement on it round about the same time that no agreement uh, was announced. So round about five o'clock uh, on Monday, they would have announced a deal. So in a way, Downing Street is just hiding behind the ECJ issue to try and ameliorate the real catastrophe of the fact that a deal was almost done. There was intense diplomatic choreography involving 28 countries and the institutions um, of the European Union, and it was the British government that fell flat on its face. Everyone then fell over. And why did the British government fall flat on its face? Because of the DUP. And there's nothing to stop this happening again and again, is there? Uh, no, indeed. And there'll be, you know, think how many parties and regional assemblies. Uh, this, the, the future trade deal um, after Brexit needs to get through every single national parliament um, and quite a few regional assemblies um, as well. That's something like 38, 40 different institutions, let alone the European Parliament and all the rest of it. The, the ability uh, of the negotiation to be held a, a hostage is, is, is immense. There's a lot of people basically lining up uh, to do so. And the weaker the British government is, its ability to hold the line, let alone take a leadership role and win public opinion for their cause, is, uh, is diminished. And, and, and like I say, it's a big worry for people. And a very quick point on that, that latter uh, point you make, Bruno, about phase two and how it'll become much more fractious. I mean, it's easy to forget that because there's an effective Irish veto on on, on phase one, um, that the Irish approval is is a necessary but not sufficient condition. Um, 
and that the uni- uni- for, for when it comes to phase two, the unity of the 27 will become uh, perhaps a bit more under strain at, at, at the very least, because if you ordered EU member states in terms of in whose interest it is to have a soft a soft border and 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 a soft Brexit, Ireland would be would be first in the line, and there would be nobody immediately behind it. Um, you know that this is a country who are economically um, on a per capita basis as exposed as, as the United Kingdom to the the, the economic fallout of of, of Brexit. Um, so you know the minute the French farmers start worrying about a, a porous border. The discussions among the twenty-seven will be absolutely fascinating and and uh, um, and potentially quite worrisome from the British side. Catherine, we've talked a lot about impatient the impatience of the city over the over the past year or so. It's hatred of uncertainty, but it's just not getting any better, is it? Uh, no, a week ago there were there was a sort of closely held view that actually things were looking not too bad. Sort of senior bankers, they didn't really want to say it publicly, but they were a lot more optimistic. They knew that the government had moved on money and they were beginning to think we would get some sort of loose wording on transition before Christmas. Obviously, as as Bruno has just been saying, it's now completely blown up. That means, therefore, that come the new year, we'll just see more and more plans being made public about banks moving staff overseas. The pound's not even down one and a half cents against the dollar this week or over the past few days, though. Are investors, are analysts, they becoming more resilient to, to these kind of Brexit curveballs? I think that, I don't know if they're becoming more resilient. I think they're just becoming more confused about how to sort of look through and see the future. Because the other thing, actually, talking to bankers and business people is how worried they are about a Corbyn government um, putting aside anyone's particular politics. They are modelling in their boardrooms a stress sort of test scenario where they see a whole range of things which as one person put it to me this week, and they sit on several boards in London, that the UK is effectively bust within three years. So I think they they think that that as a sort of alternative scenario may draw people back from the brink a bit. Um, the problem there, perhaps, is that while they may see that as a risk, um, does the nation see it as a risk? And actually something that Bruno tweeted about this week, and I think is a really good point, it's just astonishing many people in, in the business world think that the government has made, hasn't made a better fist of arguing why a 40 to £50 billion pound divorce bill is actually fine when you think that the UK spends £780 billion pounds a year. That's the UK's spending budget. £40 to £50 billion pounds paid back over years and years and years for our existing commitments for things we will actually get doesn't actually necessarily seem that bad or certainly might not to a lot of people seem that bad. And where is anyone making that argument? Absolutely nowhere. It's quite a brave argument for a cabinet minister to make though right now, isn't it? Well, I, I'm not sure that it has to be. Given how dire the circumstances are, I think it's it's there's just kind of fairly, fairly kind of easy to put that at least at least try and put that argument forward and if they get if people get their heads bitten off about it well they do but perhaps some people might think gosh actually if you think about it that way it isn't too bad i think philip hammond might have uh, might have raised that point in a select committee but i think there are a few people who want his head on traders gate at some point in the near future it, it certainly is striking how many analysts at investment banks looking ahead to next year are warning clients to be wary of a, another general election and B, the likelihood of a or the possibility of a Corbyn government. And th- there are so many 
political forces at, at play. I mean, this week, Labour have been lamenting the national embarrassment in Brussels during the talks. Tory Brexiteers are calling on the EU to back off. Remainers are accusing the government of madness. I mean, Theresa May, Marcus, is being pulled in every which way right now, isn't she? Yes, and I think that's, you know, and it's not just the backbench, it's not just the 1922 Commission and the European Research Group and the the old Eurosceptic right, it's right at the heart of the cabinet that she has chosen to reflect the pro-Brexit um, you know, element in, in, in her party. So the, the, the astounding thing that business people are now saying publicly is is, is that we're on the cusp of, of talking trade when, when we haven't had domestically the conversation about what we want our trade policy to look at. And the government hasn't decided whether we want to be untethering ourselves from from the European system to enable us to 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 be more freewheeling with third party free trade agreements, or whether that would be throwing the baby out with the bathwater and that we need to stick close to 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 the EU with whom we do half of our half of our trade and can't distance ourselves from without any any acute pain in the interim. The whole problem with a, with, a, with a campaign that was premised on taking back control is that it, it was silent on what you did with that control. Um, and now you have competing versions um, of, of what to do with that, with that control. Um, but none of it's being spoken about in, in, in the open. And none of it has even been discussed at Cabinet, which staggered uh, a lot of business lobbyists, certainly. Um, they're used to having a seat at the table. They're used to being consulted and it's not, not happening at the moment. Bruno, final thought from you. What can Theresa May and David Davis do to really turn this around now? Uh, well, I think the government needs to decide what uh, it is uh, wants. It needs to have a public debate um, and it needs to, needs to worry about that probably more than the usual suspects on back benches. And they need to be ready for some of the debates um, about surrounding the future trading relationship. But something we're going to hear an awful lot about is the so-called uh, level um, playing field before there's even a even the offer of a free trade agreement, um, which won't cover the city, by the way, but even before there's even an offer of a free trade agreement or a discussion about a free trade agreement, there's going to be this discussion about the, the level uh, playing field. And that's not really because the um, EU thinks that Britain's going to become Singapore or is going to start doing social dumping. It's really about state aid. The EU side's really worried about those assurances. I mean, it might be silence about it at the moment, but it's very worried about those assurances um, that were given uh, to Nissan. It's very worried about how the government will compensate um, for some of the disruption caused by Brexit um, with state aid effect- effectively and subsidies to industry. And that's what they're worried about. That's really what they're worried about at the moment. But I think that's a debate that we need to have in Britain. I think the reason why there was a Brexit um, vote was because most people want there to be a disruptive argument about the economy. Um, and who it works for. And so in one sense, that debate next year is a really necessary one because it's going to be about what kind of Britain do we want? What kind of economy do we want? How is it structured and who does it work for? That's about all we've got time for. Robert Miller will be back in the chair next week. In the meantime, you can follow the latest on Brexit and all the other big stories at thetimes.co.uk. My thanks to Bruno, Catherine and Marcus, and to you for listening. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.